So around my house, uh, it's almost summertime, we have a lot of summertime birthdays, and, and I know that it, we're getting close to my daughter's birthday, she's going to be 13. And the, the way I know that we're getting close is I get a daily update, a countdown of how many more days until her birthday. And that's how kids are, they're looking forward, they want to be older, you know, you ask little kids, how old are you? It's never just their age. It's, I'm, I'm five. I'm five and a half, right? They're looking forward. And when you get to be my age, you want to kind of round down a little bit, right? And so I'm 42. I'll be 43 this summer. But when I tell people, or when people ask my age, I have to do the math. And I'm thinking, okay, when was I born? What year is it? All the, and so there have been multiple times where I've done the math wrong, and then I've just gone on with my life thinking that I'm actually older than I am. And so I'll think that I'm, I'm actually the, the, the age that I'm going to be right then. And so then when it comes close to my birthday, I realize, wait a second, I've been living this last six months or year or whatever, thinking I was a certain age, but now I'm, I'm going to be that age. So it's like a free year, and I get really excited about this. And then I tell my wife, and she just shakes her head and just doesn't know what to do with me. Um, But I'm at the age where a lot of people are going through, uh, or will be going through this, what they call this midlife crisis, right? Typically, we see this in uh, uh, the male, you know, trying to get a a younger model, a racier, faster uh, model, and sometimes that's a car, and unfortunately, sometimes that's a marriage, right? They're looking at their life, looking at what's come before and what's coming up, right? And so we look forward, and we and um, you know, think, how many more years do I have left? And, and how many, you know, um, these bucket list ideas, right? And I love being a part of the, the young adult group. And I love being a part of the, uh, the things that excite them. And so these guys ask me, hey, let's go play paintball. And I'm like, yes, I get to shoot paint at people. This will be awesome. And then I start thinking, wait a second. There's, there's going to be people shooting paint at me as well. <laughs> and when I say people... These are going to be like, like high school and college-age guys, and they can run a lot faster than I can, and they heal a lot faster than I can. And so you start thinking, okay, if I want to run that marathon or, or travel here or do this or do that, I've got to do it now. So they're making these bucket lists, right? And so I've been thinking about this passage that we're going to go through today. Um, I had a friend's dad pass away, and so I was at a funeral this week, and so thinking about how do we do life well, Right? And so as I'm preparing for this sermon, I'm thinking, um, how can I help equip you guys to do life well, to spend the time that we have uh, with meaning and purpose? And the other thing is that, that we're in such a busy culture. And so when I, I used to ask people, hey, how you doing? They'd say, they'd say, fine. And now when I ask people, hey, how you doing? Oh, man, I'm so busy. I'm like crazy busy. And that's our culture. And we have more... Um, opportunities today and more options than we've ever had in our lifetime, right? I went, I had to buy laundry detergent the other day, and I go to the market. Do you know there's a whole aisle? There's a whole aisle for laundry detergent, and apparently there's only one special one that goes, that can go into our machine and clean our clothes, and I had to find that one special one. But this is the way it is with everything, cereal to hard drives, right? And opportunities, there's opportunities for kids, for adults, for seniors, in our church, in our community, in our schools, right? There's so many opportunities. And so I don't want to just 
add another thing on to our list, but I want us to live wisely. And so, so these opportunities we have as well, um, it used to be, it used to be that you would go to bed at night because the only other option was sitting there in the dark, right? But now there's this thing called Netflix. And so, so who here has binge-watched something? Do you guys know what binge Okay, good. I'm not the only one. And so there's, there's this option to, to, to watch not only multiple shows, but multiple seasons of shows, right? And so you watch one show and you go, oh, that was so good. Let me watch another one and another one. And all of a sudden it's 3 o'clock in the morning. You're like, honey, I got to go to work. Okay, just one more show. And so we want to understand how we're to spend our time in this life. And if there's no God, right, then we're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. We live and we die, and that's the end of it. But we know that's not true. As Christians, we have this eternal perspective. But then what do we do with that? Does that mean that our time here is irrelevant? That we just live for this, this future time? Are we putting curtains up in a jail cell? Do we just hang out until we die or Jesus returns? Do we round up the wagons and just bunker down, isolating ourselves, waiting for the end? No, absolutely not. We also have a kingdom perspective, and it's redeemed people. And so God's will is that we should spend our lives wisely, filled with the Spirit and redeeming time. Pray with me. God, we uh, come to your word today. We want to be... um, God, we want to be obedient to what you would have for us. Help us to understand what your will is for our lives, that we live lives of wisdom, that we live lives uh, redeeming the time for you and your glory and your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. If you want to open up with me, we're going to be in Ephesians 5, reading um, verses 15 to 21. So there's different styles of preaching, right? Um, yeah, go ahead and be seated, please. Um, you can, there's topical sermons that concentrate on more specific topics, and then they reference texts to cover the topics. And then there's expository preaching, uh, like preaching through a book of the Bible, like we're doing in Ephesians, okay? And so that concentrates on a specific text, like we're going to do today, and discusses topics covered in the text, There's arguments for both that can be made, but one of the advantages of this expository preaching is that if there are difficult or uncomfortable topics in the text, they can't just be skipped over. And so today I'm going to be speaking on how you should spend your time, the will of God, drinking alcohol, the Holy Spirit, and worship. Nothing controversial there, right? So Rick's out of town for two weeks working on his PhD classes and exams, Pretty convenient, right? (laughs) But at least I don't have to speak on wives submitting to your husbands. That'll be Jared next week. All right, let's take an overview of of the text here. This idea that we're going to walk wisely because time is short. Don't be foolish. We're to understand God's will. And then this idea of debauchery like drunkenness is a waste of time and is foolishness. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Finally, being filled with the Spirit means that we engage in worship, give thanksgiving and serving. And so this text is incredibly connected, one leading into the next. 
So thinking back to um, starting in Ephesians 4, this idea that believers are to walk in the newness of life, a renewed spirit of our minds, a new self in the likeness of God as children of the light, exchanging our old behavior for new, forgiving us as we have been forgiving, forgiving others as we have been forgiven in Christ, loving others because Christ first loved us. And so Rick taught last week on Ephesians 5 in the very beginning that we are children of light and we're to be imitating God, that we're to shine our light into the world as Christ did, and that we need to be in the world so that we have influence on it, but not of the world participating in darkness. And so Paul uses this idea of walking, and he doesn't mean literally walking, and and for most of us, walking is this thing that um, we do for exercise, right? Nobody walks to any destination anymore. Uh, We get mad when we uh, have to park at the other end of the parking lot, right, at the gym so that we can go in and get on the treadmill, right? (laughs) But for the people that Paul's talking to, walking was a a way of life, a way to get from place to place to get to your destination. And so when he uses um, this idea of walking, right, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the light, um, we're to live lives with purpose, with destination, This idea of walking in Hebrew means how to live, how to regulate, how to conduct one's life as if progressing to a destination or goal. And so we see throughout Scripture um, this idea of walking used uh, quite a bit. We're to walk in newness of life. or to walk according to the Spirit, in honesty, by faith, in good works, in love, in wisdom, in truth, and according to God's commandments. As well, we're to not walk according to the flesh. We're not to behave like the world, distorting God's word, uh, not to live only by sight with depraved minds in idleness and disorder. And so we're also to walk in a way that is careful, that is diligent, right? Not just kind of running ahead and walking, falling into sin, but this idea of circumspect. This word means to look around, to not be blindsided or tricked. And so it makes sense because we're to be examples. We're to walk the walk. And so if we're to reprove others, call others to repent, we need to first examine ourselves. If we're to imitate God, to be ambassadors for Christ, then the goal, the objective, the destination, that is our goal and our destination. And so we're not there yet but we don't want to just walk around aimlessly. We do very well, um, I think, thinking about our education or our career, and we plan it out, and we, we know where we want to go. But do we do the same thing with our spiritual lives, with our spiritual progression? Do we have a 10-year plan? Why not? Are we assessing ourselves with regard to our obedience to God, how we spend our time, the fruit in our lives, are we content with just being saved? And now we go to, ch- we just, okay, we're saved, and so then I just go to church and I don't do bad things? No. That's not the Christian life. So wisdom plays a huge part in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, or Job, um, in Job, or the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. These are all called wisdom literature. So we're going to talk about wisdom today. And so the meaning of the word, the Hebrew word for wise 
is skill. And so the wise man had the skill to live correctly. I'm going to play a clip from a, a classic uh, movie here. There we go. All right. It's true, right? That's what girls are looking for. If you've watched any action movie, he's absolutely right, right? The the better you can fight or or, uh, hack computers, that's what gets a girl. But we're not interested in that. We want to know what skill will help us in our walk, okay? And so just like a skilled artist or an athlete improves their skills through practice to produce either a fine work of art or accomplished feats of athletic ability. In the same way, the Bible says that the wise will put into practice and develop their skills of living well. And so how do we do that? Moses uh, prays in Psalm 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may be present to you a heart of wisdom. wisdom. Part of it is to understand our limited time in this life. And so part of this understanding of wisdom is that our time is limited, and we're to make the most of it. So verse 16 says we're to make the most, this idea of redeeming the time. And this refers specifically to our lifetimes, literally buying the opportunity, as we will see, to worship and to serve. It's this merchant trade metaphor that means to diligently observe and improve business. And so our time here is a gift from God. And our world doesn't often see it that way. Uh, often we get angry if God takes someone too soon, right? And yet God doesn't promise us a long life, nor does He promise us a life of prosperity or one free from suffering. And so we're not entitled to, and God is not indebted to, nor have we earned this long life. The reality is that when we obey God, there's this common grace that benefits us as we believe and behave according to the way in which we were made and the way we were made to function. And so even non-believers will benefit from this common grace, right? When we do good things, when we have charity, when we serve and love people, we see this idea of God's common grace. And then God also graces believers um, who are saved to eternal life. That's the reality. And so as Christ has redeemed us and paid the price to recover us, we are redeemed for a purpose that includes making wise use of every opportunity. Colossians 4, 5 says, conduct yourselves in our, in our attitudes and our actions with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. And so our days are numbered, right? And there are things that we do here that are good things, and there are things that we will continue to do while we're in heaven, Worship is one of those things, right? It's good now and it'll be amazing then. Work. We will have work in heaven. Good, fulfilling work, okay? We'll continue to learn these kind of things. One thing we will not be able to do in heaven is preach the gospel to those living in darkness. Can't be a light. We can't call them to Christ to trust in God alone. And so the reason that Paul says we're to make the most is because these, the days are evil. And so for those who were living in Ephesus, they understood this. There was Christian persecution all around them. But what about today? 
Each month there are 322 Christians martyred or murdered for their faith. So that works out to about 10 a day. By the time we're done this morning, a brother or sister in Christ will be killed. And two more will be beaten or raped, abducted or arrested. These are uh, some of the top countries when it comes to extreme persecution. The top five are North Korea, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. Four of the five are predominantly Muslim, North Korea holding to atheism or these kind of traditional beliefs. So are the days evil? Yes, they are. They have been since the fall. And Jesus, when he's asked about this, this, this idea of evil, this idea, this, um, this problem of evil, um, because at, the, at that time there was a case where Pilate had murdered some Galatians who were, who were, who were worshiping. Jesus says, well, not only them, but, but look at this other group that, that died when the temple of Shalom fell over. And so here he's asked about the problem of evil, and he gives two examples. He gives an example of moral evil, and he gives an example of natural evil. And he says in both cases, it wasn't that they were especially sin, uh, sinful, right? That's not the way that God works. But in each case, Jesus' answer was, yeah, they should re- that's why you should repent. Because we don't know, and they didn't know that morning when they woke up that they were going to die. But because all are sinners, all will die. And so if we insulate ourselves, or we distract ourselves, or we entertain ourselves away from this reality, there's no urgency. We don't feel... Um, real sense of redeeming our time. All right, verse 17, this idea of the unwise in Scripture. Uh, Again, it's contrasting to the wise, those who live their lives skillfully, live their lives for God. Um, And so the foolish are this unreason or unthinking, but not not necessarily intellectually. And we know there's very, very, very smart people in this world who don't put their trust in God. This idea of the will of the Lord, we're to understand the will of the Lord. And I want to talk about this for a minute. I want us to be able to distinguish and differentiate um, between what God would like to see happen and what He actually does will to happen. And both of these things can be spoken of God, as God's will. And so this has been expressed in different ways throughout the centuries. Um, theologians uh, have spoken of it as God's sovereign will and moral will. His efficient will and permissive will, his secret will and revealed will, will of decree, will of command, and on and on. We're going to talk about this. So, we see in Scripture God's sovereign will, and this is what shall be. This is what's going to happen. God's decree which infallibly comes to pass, from this word prothesis meaning to lay out beforehand, like this blueprint, right? God knows what's going to happen, and because God is sovereign, it will happen. But there's also places in Scripture that talk about God's moral will. This should be what God calls men to be. And this is this thelema, God's heart or desire for emotion. And so I want us to understand that because we're trying to understand God's will, and yet both of these things are described in Scripture as God's will. And it's not that God says it shall be, and then we can somehow thwart it, and then He goes, well, you know, I just really wish you could be. No. It's, it's these two ideas. Okay? And so... There are things that God will sovereignly make happen, 
And there's other things that God desires for us, for, for us to do and be, but will not force it on us. So if something would be uh, sexual immorality, right? God doesn't want us to be sexual Im- sexually immoral. He doesn't want us to fall into that. It's bad for us. But he doesn't manipulate us like puppets so that we can't do that. Does that make sense? And the reason I'm making a big deal out of this is because we're called to understand it, we're called to live it out, and I think that a lot of times we're trying to live out God's sovereign will, His secret will, you know, what, all these decisions we have to make. You know, do I buy the, the right house, or, or do I go on this missions trip, or, or the right girl, as if, um, you know, if we marry the wrong girl, then, then what happens? And, and then what about the guy that was supposed to marry her? And is it this big chain of dominoes? And so we waste all this time when really we're to look at what God's moral will for our life is. And so this idea is seen in, in, in our passage and as well, that, that all would be saved and all know the truth. And yet God doesn't force everyone to know the truth, doesn't force everyone to be saved. But that's his will for us, his desire, that we would give thanks, that we would be submissive, that we would be spirit-filled, that we would be sanctified, not sin against one another, and to walk in purity. This is what we're to understand, and this is what we're to seek out. All right. We're going to talk about, in verse 18, do not be drunk. Um, and so, um, the church in Ephesus would understand what Paul's talking about. There was a... Uh, a false god, this cult of Dionysus, and he was the god of wine. And so people would uh, participate in these, these worship ceremonies, these uh, orgiastic forms of worship. Um, they would get drunk, and then they would, by being drunk, be um, uh, kind of indwelt with, with uh, this, this god Dionysus. And so... Um, <laughs> Sorry, so they would get drunk, uh, they would, and prophecy would be inspired from this, they would, uh, they would kind of be possessed by this, and they'd have this frenzied dancing music, and so Paul's saying this is debauchery. All right, I made a joke earlier about expository preaching and this being a tough passage uh, regarding talking about drinking, but I think there's some truth in that. And so, I'll be honest, it's a little scary to stand up here and talk about alcohol from the pulpit, because people have such strong feelings both against alcohol in general, and then others who rightly warn against anyone who would try and impose rules where Scripture does not. And I don't want to just skip over this opportunity. And so legalism is the teaching that asserts, or the spirit that implies, we can save ourselves by how we live. And licentiousness is the idea that because we have grace in Christ, we can do whatever we want. Our culture is a culture of relativism. And so similarly, relativism is the view that it doesn't matter how we live, that God is love, and so He loves everyone the same. And we don't want to fall into any of those uh, false ideas. And so as Christians who still battle against our sin nature, we tend to gravitate one direction or the other. And as a healthy body, loving and looking out for one another, right, we want to warn against that. But unfortunately, in many cases... Uh, people are just really attuned to the opposite of their nature, and so they can easily sit in judgment of anyone who we see as differing from our position. So let me be clear from the start. I'm not advocating for underage drinking or drinking and driving or even that all Christians should drink. If it violates your conscience or you struggle with addiction, if you can't control yourself with alcohol, then you should definitely not be around it. 
Nor should other Christians try to convince anyone in that position that they have the liberty in Christ to drink. I've seen alcoholism in my family. I understand the damage it can do. And for some of you, that's enough to say, yeah, I'm done. I'm out. I don't need it. And I respect that. But ultimately, Scripture should be our guide in this discussion, not our emotions or our experiences. And so the Bible's clear. We aren't to be drunk or live lives of drunkenness. We aren't to be out of control. We aren't to be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. And so that means alcohol or drugs or even food. The Bible says that gluttony is a sin. This also means we're not to be controlled by sexual immorality or materialism, power, ultimately controlling other people, vanity, any number, any number of things can become idols. So in the Bible, both wine and shikar, which is this fermented barley or beer, right? Both are seen as a blessing from God and its absence as God's judgment. Jesus drank wine and it's his first miracle. It's associated with Christ's blood, with the new covenant, and with heaven. We know that beer, also called strong drink, was not called that for nothing. It had an alcohol content between around 6 and 12 percent. And wine was not simply grape juice, or else why, why would Paul be warning against getting drunk on it? The Bible, however, never requires all believers to abstain from alcohol, nor does the Bible advocate that that's the wisest way to avoid drunkenness. Um, and so, in fact, if Christians want to forbid all alcohol consumption to avoid drunkenness, and we want to be consistent, we should also avoid making money to guard against materialism, the love of money, and the misuse of wealth. So in our home, I'll enjoy a good IPA or a Merlot with dinner, and my kids see that. And we have great conversations about alcohol and what God's Word says and what God's desire for us is. They understand that at the core of drunkenness are these heart issues, ultimately wanting to escape reality or our problems or our pain. All this is contrary to the biblical understanding of God's will for us to turn to Him in our despair, in our sickness, in our loneliness, that joy comes from God. And so I want my kids to know and I want our culture to know as well that Christianity has a better message, a beautiful answer to the questions of life, marriage, human dignity, freedom, conscience, and self-control. This this abundant life in Christ is this disciplined freedom. It's this action of thanksgiving that brings glory to God. Similarly, as sex is a beautiful gift from God in the proper context of marriage, and so we have to engage the culture without being taken by the culture. And that can be done by not drinking and drinking in moderation. We never want to add anything to the gospel of Christianity. And, and we don't want to sell Christianity as this list of don'ts and no's. That's already what our culture thinks, that God is this giant buzzkill. All right, enough on that. Again, emails can be sent to Pastor Tim at cccLH.org. All right. So Paul talks about this idea of excess, dissipation, this overindulgence, and that's um, that's the connection he's making, again, with this idea of um, drunkenness, right? When good things become God things, that's idolatry. So he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. And this is often in Scripture associated with boldness and joy. Uh, These things are not to be then sought in wine, but in the wine creator. And so, when Paul's talking about the filling of, uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, this isn't kind of the, um, 
This isn't the indwelling of the Spirit that he's talking about, which uh, all Christians have uh, at the time that they're saved. But the filling of the Spirit, he's talking about our Christian lives and how the Spirit applies to living it out. And so the filling is, is not this one-time event, like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this idea. Um, but, he, but Paul uses it synonymously with this idea of walking in the Spirit or living in the Spirit. And so we're most, probably most familiar with uh, Paul's address in Galatia, where he ta- contrasts walking in the flesh with walking in the Spirit. And then he lists the deeds of the flesh, and then he contrasts that with the fruits of the Spirit. All right, there's a parallel passage in Colossians 3, 15 to 17. You can turn there if you like. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, do in word or deed, do all in the name of Lord Jesus of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. Can you see the correlation? You see how he's talking about the same things that we're talking about in this passage. He's talking about thanksgiving and singing songs, um, doing it all in the name of the Lord, these kind of ideas. But instead of saying being filled with the Spirit, he uh, tells the Colossians this idea of let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and that let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. So we see this association uh, that we want the peace of Christ to govern our hearts, and that we want to uh, let God's Word fill our lives. Okay, this is being filled with the Spirit. And so, uh, to have Christ, this peace of Christ, rule over us, uh, is to live in this present consciousness of Jesus, this nearness of the gospel. And so, imagine yourselves maybe at the foot of the cross, or walking with the risen Christ, okay? How does that impact our daily lives, moment by moment? Now, I have a daughter who started dating, and so I had to have a little, no, I didn't have to, but I I wanted to have a a talk about intimacy and about expectations and these kind of things. And so part of that talk was, hey, when you guys are on a date, just imagine that um, your mom and dad are with you right there, wherever you're at, in the movie theater. I said, you guys will be just fine. So I asked Hannah, I said, hey, can I have permission to use that in the sermon today? She goes, you said that? I was like, oh, gosh. Yes, I said that. And look, I don't want it to, it's not necessarily about this guilt thing, right? Although I'm a dad, I'll, I'll take the guilt thing if that works. But it, it's this, this idea um, of pursuing purity, of confessing sin, dying to self, surrendering to God's will, trusting in Him and His power for all things, and to do amazing things through Him and in Him for His glory. So being filled with the Spirit is this wisdom and understanding of God's will that, li- that leads to this life of devotion. Okay, and that's what we're going to be talking about next. What comes out of that being filled with the Spirit is this engaging and worshiping and thanksgiving and serving. And so we're to speak to one another, verse 19. We're to encourage one another through worship and thanksgiving and service. And inside the church, that looks like discipleship. Outside the church, that looks like evangelism. How do we speak to non-believers? Is it in truth and love? Is it talking about deeper things than sports and the weather? And how do we worship God with our lives? Is it apparent? 
How do we serve others? Do we reflect Christ, who is the example of how to live a spirit-filled life? And so we as the church need to engage our culture, our communities. The question is how? Our world is broken and living in darkness. And when we see brokenness, are we just going to stand there and wag our finger saying, yep, I told you so, you're broken, should have followed God. As Christians, we're, we know brokenness, we know despair. Secular society doesn't even have the vocabulary to deal with sin and its effects. If sin isn't real, if it's just this made-up thing, they, can't even ha- they don't even have the, the words to talk about these kind of ideas. But we do. As redeemed and restored people walking in the light, walking in the Spirit, we also know hope in Christ. We need to be running into brokenness, bringing light into darkness. When it hits us that the days are evil, we have a tendency to say, Jesus, come back soon. And believe me, it'll be amazing, but we don't just get to sit on our hands until then. We weren't saved to just wait around. We were saved into the kingdom of God, redeemed, restored, forgiven, children of God, walking in the light, walking in the Spirit. And so what do kingdom people do? How do they redeem the time that we have here on earth? I think we're good at answering the question of what are we saved from? So what are we saved from? You can answer. What's that? Death. What else? Sin. Good. Condemnation. Good. All these things, right? You guys didn't know there was going to be, you would have studied, right? Um, Good. So, yeah, we're good at answering that question. I think we're good at answering what are we saved to? saved to the glory of God. But the question that I think we struggle with sometimes is, what are we saved for? We're saved for good works and restoration. And think about it. Why did God save you individually? What are your gifts? What are your skills? How, what part do you play in the kingdom of God? Uh, John Stone Street from uh, um, Breakpoint, uh, the Colson Project, um, he was on, the inter, uh, on a podcast, and I was listening to, um, he's got a, a new book out called Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And he was talking about these ways that as redeemed people that we can, um, we can run into the brokenness, we can be light. And so he asked these questions, what is good? What are the good things that we see around us in our culture, in our friends, and our neighbors, Right? Even if they're not believers, how can we promote and preserve and protect those things? When we see truth, when we see beauty, justice, freedom, art, family, those are good things. Those are things worth protecting, worth promoting. Uh, Tomorrow's Memorial Day. It's not just about picnics and hanging out with your family, getting a day off work. It's for remembering those who have given their lives so that we can live in a place without religious persecution found elsewhere in the world. So how can we honor and preserve these ideas of sacrifice, these ideas of freedom? How can we promote standing against tyranny and evil? We we should ask, as we look around, what is missing? What is missing from our culture? Certainly Christ and the gospel, but what about second chances? What about fathers? What about these families in need, and how we can support them? What about these um, places of poverty where people are, are using microloans to, to help them out? These kind of ideas. What is missing? What is evil? 
Christians have led the way in the pro-life movement, in abolition. Um, There's a lot of evil out there, sex trafficking, persecution. How can we stand in the way of that? How can we be part of abolishing it? And then what is broken that we can restore? As restored people, we're called to restore. And so we look around and lives, families, communities are broken. Places like Haiti, Nepal are broken. And so the gospel is lived out in answer to each of these questions. And Christ is the perfect example of how we are to answer each of these questions. We're to be God's people, imitators, children of light, and ambassadors of Christ. And so we're the best equipped to run into the brokenness and bring light into the darkness. Uh, I'm so behind here. Um, God's Word is so good and so full. Um, let me talk quickly about this. Um, this idea... Uh, I'm going I'm to go here. Okay. <laughs> the very end, uh, verse 21, ends with this idea of the fear of, the, fear of Christ, right? This is why we do all these things. And um, we know that Proverbs 1-7 says, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So now we're right back where we started from, this idea of wisdom and fear of the Lord. And um, there's a lot I could say about this, but um, Ken Berkson was teaching last week, and we were talking about this idea of the fear of the Lord. And so this fear is more than just reverence and awe. It's this encounter with God that is life-changing. I want to read this quote from um, Kevin DeYoung's book called Crazy Busy. Um, it's a long quote, so I apologize in advance, but it's good. Uh, the reason we are busy is because we are supposed to be busy. I don't want you to think that the best thing we can do for ourselves and for the world is to take a pass on every difficult request. Live for leisure and throw ourselves a giant me party. I don't want you to think that hard work is the problem or that sacrificing for others is the problem or that suffering is necessarily the problem. If you have creativity, ambition, and love, you will be busy. We're supposed to disciple the nations. We're supposed to work with our hands. We're supposed to love God with our minds. We're supposed to have babies and take care of them. It's not a sin to be busy. It's not wrong to be active. But busyness is as much a mindset and a heart sickness as it is a failure in time management. It's possible to live your days in a flurry of hard work, serving and bearing burdens, and to do so with the right character and the right dependence on God so that it doesn't feel crazy busy. And by the same token, it's possible to, be, to feel amazingly stressed and frenzied while actually accomplishing very little. The antidote to busyness of soul is not sloth and indifference. The antidote is rest, rhythm, death to pride, acceptance of our own finitude, and trust in the providence of God. The busyness that's bad is not the busyness of work, but the busyness that works hard at the wrong things. It's being busy trying to please people, busy trying to control others, busy trying to do things we haven't been called to do. So please don't hear from me that work is bad or that bearing burdens is bad. That's part of life. That's part of being a Christian. And so this gave me comfort. And I often talk to atheists who, who um, will talk about um, uh, the inefficiency of, of, of God or the wastefulness of God. And they'll say something like, look, there's you know, this huge universe, and yet there's one tiny planet that, that, that all life is on right? Isn't that a waste? Isn't God inefficient? Why does he work that way? Uh, They'll say, look, God uses, uh, reveals himself to a couple men throughout history. 
uh, and then that's supposed to, that's how God is going to relate to us. Why doesn't God, you know, write a big, uh, arrange the stars in, a, in, a, in the sky to, to print out a message or something? And so, if God is perfect, why is there so much waste? And, and here's the deal. Efficiency is only important if you have limited time or limited resources. And God has neither, or God is lacking in neither. And so God's love often, this effective love, is rarely efficient. And so people take time. Relationships are messy. If we love others, how can we not be busy and burdened at least some of the time? No matter how well we plan or how much we get re-energized from a Sabbath or vacation, there are bound to be times where life feels overwhelming. But unlike God, we are limited. We are not God, and we can't do everything. We're probably too busy because we just aren't resting in and trusting in God. And so there's uh, what's known as these killer Ps, right? And so when we don't rest in God, when we don't trust in God, we get crazy busy. And, And this happens when we say yes to things that please other people so that we will be praised. When we think so highly of ourselves that we assume, if I don't do this, it won't get done. When we keep working to get more stuff, and then have to take care of that, that same stuff, when we have something to prove, when we wear our busyness as a badge of honor, when we're looking for others' sympathy, when we're too proud or worried about appearances to let others help, when we have to stay in control, when we're driven by perfectionism, when we're afraid to lose priority, when we are seeking to find worth in the things we do, and finally, when our social media posts are an outlet for our glory. And so when people ask me, how's life? I want to answer full, but not frantic, full of the Spirit of God. And I want to answer kingdom-minded, not crazy busy. I want to be about calling others to the kingdom of God, worshiping, being thankful, and serving others.